Hello, 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 and welcome to Kicking and Streaming, the show where streaming originals and traditional cinema enter the ring for the ultimate showdown. I'm Bo. And I'm Chris. Are streaming originals the TV movies of the 21st century? Is cinema really different from movies? Is Netflix the future? These questions and more on... Kicking and Streaming. Kick, uh, kicking and... You, you, need, you, need to say, you need to say it with me. No, I thought you... Okay, okay, hold on. Kicking and... Hold on. No, no. Okay. At the same time. Okay. Okay. One, two. Kicking and Streaming. Okay. No. Here. No, okay. I'll, I'll count you in. Okay, here we are with episode four of Kicking and Streaming. Hello. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Welcome, Chris. <laughs> Welcome to episode four. Thanks for having me, Bo. It's a pleasure to be here. Glad glad, glad to have you with me. <laughs> you know, the studio is a lot bigger than it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It, it's it's my turn to, to pick. My pick was the Criterion film, The Asphalt Jungle, directed by the great, the notorious John Huston. Deeply notorious. It's a 1950 picture. Uh, could be called a noir film. Could be called a heist film. But I'm going to let you take it away and tell us what this film is all about. Yes, yes. This was my bi-weekly exposure to culture. Bo forced me to watch a good movie, which I always resent. Oh, good right out of the gate, huh? Oh, yeah. Okay, before I get into my thoughts, let's just kind of go down the, the beats of the story here. So the asphalt jungle, uh, as Bo said, is kind of a... It definitely is kind of noirish, noiry, noiry, Just noir, just noir, just noir. Doesn't sound right. Just noir. Are you sure? My gut tells me it's noiresque, noiresque. Listen, that's not important. <laughs> What's important is the story of the asphalt jungle. You see, the asphalt jungle, as it starts, we are we are first introduced to a. Uh, what would you say? A little, a little uh, hoodlum, a hooligan, as 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 you would say. Yeah, except I wouldn't say little. Uh, that's true. Uh, yeah, uh, his name is Dix. If anything, I, I would say he is anything but little. He is probably the tallest guy I've seen in a movie since Lurch in the Adams Family. <laughs> that that's that's something they can put on the box. <laughs> <laughs> Critics rave reviews. The tallest man I've seen since Lurch in the Adams Family. Chris Bringhurst, kicking and streaming. <laughs> But I have to say, at first, when I when I first saw the guy, I, I I think he's the first guy we see as he's sort of wandering down the streets trying to uh, evade police. And initially, I thought this guy's got to be one of the chunkhead henchman types. That was kind of like the look on his face, the big physicality to him. I thought he might be a lesser character. And as the movie as the movie goes, we end up spending more and more time with the guy, and I start to realize he's essentially our leading man. He's it's it's an ensemble piece, but I think he might be the one through whom we experience the most of the story. But uh, he's he's trying to run away from cops, and he he makes it to a diner, and his buddy Gus kind of covers for him and uh, sends the cops away. And there's already, just within these first few minutes, there's this kind of rapport that gets established where we sort of see the relationship that criminals and cops have in this town, where they're all kind of aware that each other exists there's kind of this there's this back and forth. I think that the dialogue in this movie is fantastic. They do a really good job conveying fairly nuanced relationships without having to dig into a lot of exposition. And I have to say uh, the character Gus, the guy who runs the diner, 
He, he's got to be one of my favorite wingman characters in the show ever. That guy just had such a good head on his shoulders through most of the film. I, I was always happy to see him on screen. So already we're introduced to this guy who's kind of a low-life mugger type and this guy who runs a diner who's clearly got connections on all sides of things. He's, I mean, he's not some big crime boss by any means, but he, it's, it seems like he's fairly chummy with both the cops and the criminals to the extent that, I, I don't even know if chummy is the right word. He doesn't seem particularly happy to have Dixon there using his diner as a hideout, <laughs> and he's not particularly happy to see the cops either, but he's acquainted. We'll say acquaintances. It's complicated. And as things continue, we get introduced on the other side of town to this guy named Kabi, who runs kind of a bookie sort of kind of a kind of a low level little crime hole. That's what I call it. Crime hole. A crime hole. Wow. In the corner of town. <laughs> you should be writing these. I should be they should hire me to write the inevitable remake. Yeah, you could do at least you could, you know, do some script doctoring. Yeah. Oh, I doctor the heck out of this script. So Kabi's in charge of this little crime hole. And this guy, Doc, this German fella, he, he comes to the door and we find out that Doc is basically a criminal mastermind type who has just been released after a little stint in prison. And he's looking for Kabi because he hears that he can help him set up a new job. And very soon we find out that Doc has got a plan for the heist of the century, this massive payoff, tons of jewels. And he, he wants to put together a team, pull off this big heist, but he needs funding for it. And Kabi sort of views Doc almost with a sort of reverence, I think. The show does a great job uh, building a lot of respect for this Doc character. He's very much the, the Gandalf of the crew, I would say. But uh, Kabi doesn't have the cash to put together for it, so he makes a connection. And I thought it was kind of cool. As this movie went along, we got exposed to pretty much every level, at least broadly speaking, of the criminal society in this town. Because you get introduced to Dix early on, who is about as low as it gets crime wise then you get Kabi, who's kind of the rat who's a little weasley guy who who kind of runs things for some of the lower level fellas and then you have doc who is this genius who's been on the outside of it and then Kabi introduces doc to this lawyer and his name emmerich emmerich yeah that's right he introduces him to emmerich who let, let me interrupt you just real quick by all means so the the great french director who also made a lot of crime films jean-pierre melville he made uh, some films you've seen like Le Samurai mm. or The Samurai and several other mm -hmm. you know, crime films. But he said this. He once declared that by his reckoning, there were precisely 19 possible dramatic variants on relations between cops and crooks and that all 19 were to be found in that masterpiece of John Huston, referring to The Asphalt Jungle. Hmm. That's really cool. I'm, so yeah. just just off the back of what you said about, you know, all these relations and types that we're seeing crop up in, the, in this film. Yeah, yeah. It, it was actually really cool. It, it stuck out to me almost immediately. I mean, I don't know. To me, that's a bit rare where you get to see all sides of something. And through, throughout the film, we're, 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 we get these little glimpses of lots of different types of cops. And it's kind of fun to watch a film that by this point has become sort of stereotypical, the heist film. And to see such a colorful and varied take on it. And again, this was made back before it was even a cliche, I imagine. But Yeah, in fact, I mean, this is very much a seminal heist film, right? One of the ones that people... I mean, it's almost a seminal film in the sort of mastermind who gathers together a team. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And a lot of people look at, you know, early heist films. They look at Rafifi, the famous uh, French film that has... It's, I think, famous 11-minute 
sort of unbroken, silent heist scene in it. But this comes before that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's an important film in terms of setting up the genre. Uh, and it, not only does it take the heist and make that, you know, the, the central point of this crime story, it really uh, de-emphasizes a lot of the melodrama. I mean, film noir, uh, perhaps we should just mention, is generally, this is debatable, but it's generally defined as post-war mm -hmm. Hollywood films that were essentially crime melodramas with a lot of shadowy figures and femme fatales and detectives and hard-bitten fatalism. And uh, later on, the term film noir was coined to describe them. At the time, they were just crime melodramas. But this uh, this movie is quite short on melodrama, I think, Yeah. Uh, at least in terms of the period. There's a lot of elements of sort of neorealism. Hmm. There's a lot of pragmatism. And there is some stylization in it, some Hollywood stylization, particularly in the nighttime scenes, I think. Mm -hmm. But it's not as prevalent as it is in a lot of your sort of quintessential noir stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, you, yeah, you mentioned that there's minimal melodrama in this film. And I have to agree, I actually was reminded as I was watching this, in some ways, this film reminded me of the one in our very first episode, Le Trau, oh, gosh. which is French for... The whole, le le Yeah, I had the same thought. Yeah, it's you get kind of this this team of guys who kind of become chummy and everything, and you have a plan that goes wrong, and you get you got a lot of buildup. And I mean, in le tru, there's not a lot of time to view the aftermath. It's all build up, and then it quickly explodes at the end. Whereas this one, I would even say the you know the pivotal eleven minute heist is kind of at the center of the story. So you get about half the film building up to it and half the film sort of following the aftermath of it. And interestingly, I think pretty much the only true piece of melodrama in the film centers on the character of Emmerich, which to me, I mean, there are little things like Dix has a relationship with a girl whose name is Doll that they have kind of a thing with, but there's there's not a lot of conflict there. It's mostly just they're just kind of there for each other. But uh, this Emmerich character, he's this hoity-toity, big-time criminal defense lawyer who is friends with Cobby, who tries to hook him up with Doc to fund this big heist. And Emmerich is, you know, he's intrigued by the idea, says they can count on him. And then shortly after, just a few scenes later, Doc is speaking with Cobby, and he says that he was speaking with, remind me, Bo, was it a woman who had cavorted with Emmerich previously that Doc spoke with? Oh, right. Right. Yes. Doc spoke with somebody who was familiar with Emmerich's situation. And he mentioned that he didn't trust Emmerich because the woman that Doc had spoken to revealed that Emmerich was actually broke. And of course, you know, when somebody is broke and used to being rich, that is, that's a liability. Especially in a financier. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's kind of important that they have money. And it, it's interesting because it reminded me of Le Treux, Le, Le, Le Treux, the this part where uh, kind of the mastermind of that crew mentions that he doesn't really trust the main character. And I actually liked Emmerich in the first scene with him, where I was like, ah, oh, this guy's kind of kind of schmoozy and charming a little bit. But then, of course, just a few scenes later, Emmerich speaks with his uh, private detective that works for him, named Bob. And he's talking to Bob, and he basically confirms what Doc has already been suspecting, that he is broke. And this is actually one of the cool things... Um, I can't remember, Bo, remind me if it was Hitchcock who said this. It was either Hitchcock or Tarantino. One of them. They're so close together, it's hard to... Uh... <laughs> no, uh, I think it was Hitchcock. Does it have a lot of swearing in it? Oh, yep, yep, it was Hitchcock. <laughs> 
No, uh, I, I do believe it was Hitchcock. He was talking about a, a fairly routine conversation at a, at a dinner table. And it's very run-of-the-mill, very standard conversation. Oh, yes. But then you show the audience a bomb under the table. Yeah, the, the baseball bomb analogy. Yeah, that's that's classic Hitchcock suspense setup. That's right. And what I kind of loved was that this was, in a roundabout way, was kind of a bomb under the table. It was because we see Doc doesn't trust Emmerich. And then we see, shortly after, that Emmerich is indeed planning something screwy. And I got to admit, maybe in his mind or maybe back then a plan like that would go over pretty smooth. But as he's describing the plan to his private detective, I'm thinking like, my word, you think you're going to get away with this with a guy like Doc who's who's got a reputation for meticulousness and detail? And this Emmerich guy, he basically he plans to, you know, he, he volunteers to fence the diamonds himself. And then he confesses to Bob that, you know, he doesn't have any money. And so he, he says he's going to tell them that he'll hold on to the diamonds. And then he'll just kind of, you know, oh, yeah, got away from me. Can't still can't find the money. Wouldn't you know it? And then he just leaves. <laughs> His master plan. I'll just take the diamonds. I'll tell him I'll pay him. I won't pay him. And then I'll leave. <laughs> Which, you know, simpler times back then, I suppose. But, you know, for a criminal defense lawyer, you have to imagine he's had at least a few clients. I mean, I think it's kind of counting on them. You know, they've got to sort of trust that he's wealthy enough that this is nice, but not his complete windfall. I think that he's gambling on them thinking that he's, you know, this is an, a tidy sum for him to tuck into his already large yeah. Income. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Which is not the case. That, that is very true, actually. His plan actually makes a lot of sense if his reputation was as rock solid as he assumed it was. But as we see, you know, early on, Doc has a weird feeling about him. And so this job goes down, this this 11 minute heist. And it's kind of it's it's really interesting, actually, because they spend a lot of the movie planning it, putting the pieces together. And then, you know, like you said, for the actual heist, it takes up a very small portion of the film. And... Again, it kind of reminded me of Le Treux, Le, Le, Le just watching these professionals working, doing their thing. Each of them kind of knows what their knows what their responsibility is. And then to see things go a bit wrong, uh, they end up, they have to use some explosive to get through to the safe. And the explosive ends up setting off a bunch of alarms in the neighborhood, which adds a sense of urgency to it. Yeah, not in the pivotably. Uh, well, pivotably. That's uh, <laughs> not going to put that in there. In <laughs> Yeah, importantly, it's it's not that it sets off the alarms in the bank, which they accounted for and disabled. Yeah. But in a twist, the shock sets off alarms in adjacent buildings, which they had not accounted for. Yeah. That's actually one thing that, that kind of permeates a lot of this film is that phrase, man makes plans and God laughs. They've accounted for so much, but a lot of what undoes this film is just, just cruddy luck. Because you have these alarms go off, and then as they're as they're running out, they bump into a security guard. They get into a bit of a tussle. He drops his gun, and the gun just fires off and shoots their safecracker in the stomach, who is, sadly enough, the only family man in the group, which is, of course, you know it's going to be the family man. This, as soon as he talks about how much he loves his family, I'm just thinking, ah, great. No, <laughs> please. Yeah. Not, not again. Yeah, he, he basically gets shot by a misfire. He's not even intentionally shot. <laughs> and uh, they end up going to Emmerich's. And the whole, everything leading up to this point, I'm feeling very tense because I'm wondering, you know, Doc is suspicious. How is this going to go down? And, you know, Emmerich tries to pull his, gosh, guys, wouldn't you know it? I don't have the money. And Doc is, you know, his reactions to everything are so realistic and fascinating to me. He's he's already like, are you, are you professional? Yeah, professional. That's the right phrase for it. He, he, he tells me he doesn't have the money. He's like, are you kidding me? Like, who am I dealing with here? Like, I thought we had this squared away. 
and things very quickly devolve. Bob pulls a gun on them. There's a big tussle there. Bob ends up, I mean, I'm realizing now I'm getting a very beat for beat replay of this story, but uh, spoiler warning. <laughs> My word. <laughs> Uh, so they have this big tussle that ends up with yet another dead body to have to deal with. Emmerich does not get the diamonds. Yeah, I, I'm just going to jump in here since <laughs> since we are going beat for beat. <laughs> it's just a fun movie to narrate. I, I won't wait. I won't wait for you to finish. <laughs> I, I won't. I won't. Uh, I won't let you finish. I'm just going to dive in right here and say we we're calling it a tussle. But actually, this, for me, I remember the first time I saw this film, this is one of the most memorable scenes, just mm. the efficiency that Dix has. And and this is, I think, maybe my favorite relationship in the film, is the relationship between Doc and Dix, the hooligan and the mastermind. Yeah, yeah. Because you can see that everybody except Doc looks at Dix as just sort of a big lug, a hooligan. He's not very smart. They don't get his weird code of honor, and they just think he's he's just a guy. They... they it's Doc who's interested in bringing him in. All the people that actually know Dix are kind of like, oh, yeah, sure, he's fine, I guess, whatever. Mm-hmm. But the relationship they have, because Doc understands that he isn't a big lug. He understands that he's a, a guy who has power. And I think above all, what this film values the most, and that's professionalism. Mm-hmm. He's a professional. He's not going to lose his cool. He's not going to get too excited. He's not going to squeal. He's not going to crack. He's a professional. And so this little tussle that they have is this nice, smooth moment where you can see they've got a gun on them. And the guy with the gun, Bob, says, you know, hand over the jewels. And Doc isn't ruffled. He simply turns to Dix and says, do I hand him over? And Dix says, yes. And the other guy is like, you know, the guy with the gun is basically, of course you do. I've got the gun. But it's all about what Dix says. So he passes him the stuff. And right as he's passing it in one smooth motion... Dix manages to go from hands up to drawing his gun and gunning down Bob. Bob does get a shot off, but it's helter-skelter and ends up just kind of winging Dix on his side. Yeah. And that's how they're able to get out of that situation. That was a really cool sequence. I remember even the way it was shot. As Dix dives to the side, the camera sort of jerks to follow his movement. It sucked you into the moment. We sort of see this relationship with Doc and Dix, because like you both, that... Their relationship was probably my favorite part, especially as the film went on. And towards the end, Doc offers Dix a bunch of diamonds, you know, in exchange for his help. And Dix is just like, where am I going to take these? Keep them. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm not going to walk into a pawn shop with this. It's almost kind of this brotherly moment, this bond. But also Dix is being pragmatic about it. He's pragmatic, same as Doc. Yeah. And I think what you're touching on that sort of fraternal underdogs uh, W.R. Burnett, who wrote the book that this is based on, and many, many screenplays, including co-writing this one with Houston himself and with Ben Maddow, he was very interested in groups of men under pressure and what happens and how they try to succeed and how they deal with these things that are thrown against them. And Houston, throughout his entire career, has two motifs, I think, that you can trace through his very long career as a director. The first is that he's usually, he's very literate. He's usually adapting from a novel. And the second is that he's very interested in wash-ups, losers, underdogs, people engaged in ultimately futile endeavors. And you see this time and again throughout his filmography, which, you know, we're, we're talking movies 
in the 30s and 40s into the 70s and so on. So quite a range of Mm. types of films, but still looking at this, you know, these underdogs coming together. And I think that you certainly see this here. You know, it's tinged with fatalism. It's I mean, well, let me ask you, Chris, did you feel like at, at what point of the film did you think they're not going to get away with this? Oh, man, that's a good question. I think for me it might have been when the box man, the the uh, the safe guy, safe cracker, when he got shot. For me, that might have been the moment because I already knew that Emmerich was planning a double cross, which I knew was going to throw a wrinkle into things. For some reason, the safe cracker getting shot—that was me kind of realizing already. There's little, there's tons of little inklings that things aren't going to go according to plan. But that was the first violent moment where it was, yeah, okay, things really, yeah, are not going according to plan. Yeah, and it's interesting because that's you know that's essentially the halfway point of the film. The heist is not the climax of the film. It happens fairly early on, and a lot of what the final act of the film is just everybody trying to get away with what they can and deal with the aftermath, the fallout of what's happened. Yeah, that's actually something I really liked. Uh, towards the end of the film, the band is breaking up more and more. Cobby folds, gives up everybody, which dramatically ramps up the desperation, the tension, that feeling that no one's going to get away. Yeah, he, he turns states. Yeah, he's and that, that that's actually a fun sequence, too, just to talk about for half a second. The, uh, the dirty cop who's on Cobby's payroll. It's interesting uh, when he Cobby's trying to bargain with him, almost like he's trying to bargain with the devil, you know, just please give me give me give me give me just like an hour to, to get away and do something like his his pleas get more and more desperate. He's. By the end of it, he's asking for less and less and less anything to just get him away from having to go to jail for this. And they get into this into this little tussle, and uh, he 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 slaps Cobby around like nothing I've ever seen. Yeah, he's like a slapping bag, like a punching bag for slaps. He's just riddling him with palms to the face. And at the end, he at the end of that, he just says, "I told you, Cobby. Like you're you're too soft. You can't take it." And so he eventually, Cobby just weeps and and gives in and. Which really, from the very first time you see Cobby, I didn't predict that he'd be the one to give them all up because I didn't think they were going to all be given up. But out of everybody in the crew, he is clearly the weak link, not counting Emmerich, obviously. Yeah. In in a movie that, again, you know, where the currency is professionalism, you can tell that Emmerich and Cobby just aren't able to hack it in the same way yeah. that the rest of these guys are. You know, from Doc and Dix and Gus... And the little bit we see of the safe cracker, who you still get the idea that, you know, even as he's dying, that he's one of the pros and he wouldn't, he's not a wink, a wink, he's not a weak link in that, (laughs) in that, uh, you know. Shorthand. Yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, on that, there's that great moment. Yeah. You know, when you see how they react to that, right? Gus gets a bit hot-headed when he sees, when he sees Cobby. In jail and knows that he turns state's evidence and goes for him. That sequence broke my heart. Yeah, goes for him. And you know that if Mm -hmm. if you just get his hands on him, you know, he's basically going to strangle him for what he did. And then you get to see the way that Sam Jaffe, who plays Doc, the way that he, all of his interactions, I think, with Emmerich Mm -hmm. are just two great performances. You see Emmerich, who's all pomp and show and trying to schmooze everybody, and Doc just kind of giving him these slight quizzical, you know, just he's not grilling him, but just little inflections in his voice or little arches of his eyebrows show like, wait a minute, as he's examining this. And you can tell he himself admits that he 
he knew that this guy was no good, but there was such a dazzle of wealth that he he took the gamble and he goes for the money, and that kind of ends up being yeah one of a series of things that that brings them down. But I love that that moment after the sequence we talked about where the betrayal happens and the guy who pulls the gun, Bob, ends up getting shot, and all of that happens, and Doc just looks at Emmerich. And he's not yelling. He's not angry. He just says, "Why? Why did you pull a stunt like that? Like, what do? You, what were you thinking? <laughs> you know, essentially, again, just coming at it from that the aspect of a professional who's sort of miffed at uh, something that one of his subordinates has has done. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think you could sort of transport this film, and instead of a heist movie, we could be watching, you know, some mm-hmm. miners pulling a, a tricky mining job or some hunters in the in the jungle or something, and you can sort of transport every relationship and every emotional beat into that. And I think that's one of the things that was sensational about the, the movie at the time as well, is it sort of, it takes crime... And it doesn't. It's not a fun caper of like, you know, a sophisticated, handsome guy, you know, stealing jewels and winking at women. Yeah, there's no George Clooney here. Yeah, yeah. It's not a mob film, although mm-hmm. you know there is an organized crime element to it, of course. But it's more kind of separating the line, I think, between society and criminals. And you sort of get the idea that this this could be you. You know, if you were born in this circumstance. Uh, It doesn't really spend a lot of time hemming and hawing about the morality of what they're doing. These are just some people, and they're doing a job. They're figuring out how to do the job. They're trying to do it in the best way they can, and they're dealing with the police. And the police, some of them are sort of didactic and self-righteous. Others of them are crooked. Yeah. Others of them are just also people doing their job. They just happen to be born on that side of the line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you get a lot of matter-of-factness in the way that the, the crime is presented and the way that we that we move through. Uh, I want to ask you what you think of the, the women in this film. This is an ensemble movie, but we've got um, mostly men that we're following. But we do have three uh, pivotal women characters. That's right. Um, most noticeably to people watching from today will be the presence of Marilyn Monroe. This is sort of her breakout role. One of the, one of her, she has a small part, but she makes a splash. You know, she gets to sashay across the screen a couple times. <laughs> uh, and this is one that uh, sort of puts her on the map. We've got Doll, who essentially just sort of is a puppy dog, good woman following dicks around, trying to save him from himself. Played by Gene Hagen. You recognize her, don't you? Gene Hagen. Do you know Gene Hagen? She looked she looked really familiar. Um <laughs> it's it's oh, because it's, she was Lena Lamont, right? Yeah, yeah. Lena Lamont. Lena Lamont, yeah, and singing in the rain. Yeah, five years later. It's great because she everybody remembers her for that, you know. That's right. Um and then we get Emmerich's wife. Right. So those are the three women, and I just wanted to know what you thought of the the women characters and the role they play. Yeah, good question. It seemed like they largely acted as foils to their male counterparts. I I really liked Dahl. I thought I thought the acting from all of them was was terrific. Writing wise, there's a bit of a 
how would I say it? Same kind of situation as you have in Lord of the Rings, where you've got kind of this it's a men's journey being carried out by men, but there are significant female characters who contribute a lot to the story, even though they aren't necessarily there with, you know, marching to Mordor with the rest of them. I think Dahl made for an interesting contrast to Dix's life. You know, she, she was kind of a simple girl trying to make ends meet. I don't know. It was interesting. She felt like a real person. She didn't feel like she was just written to be there as, you know, eye candy or whatever. She served a purpose. And at the same time, you never got the impression that she more than casually disapproved of Dix's lifestyle. You know, she wanted him to be safe. She wanted him to stay out of trouble and everything. But she wasn't exactly, you know, yelling at him for, for getting himself into so much trouble. Mostly she's just sympathetic all the way through even as the film carries on toward the end. Yeah, she's sort of the sympathetic enabler, I think. You know, she's she's going to let him be whatever he wants to be, and she's trying to save him, but she's really also willing to follow him basically wherever he goes. Yeah, she's she's too crazy about him to to force him to do anything that's, that's not already in his purview. I, I think you're right about the women being sort of, you know, foil characters, but it, but it is interesting the way that they're presented, you know, where... We're looking at at these professionals in the professional world, which, of course, in the 1950s is mostly a masculine world. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing these women on the periphery. But I think, yeah, yeah, you know, I think they're treated with sympathy. And I think that we're understanding that because they're on the periphery, they're suffering for that. You know, we see Dahl who is just trying to, yeah, you know, just trying to see some return on her affection, but willing to to keep giving it regardless. We've got the Marilyn Monroe character, yeah, you know, yeah. the mistress of Emmerich. Angela. Yeah, Angela. And she's not even, you know, even she gets to have some moments of sympathy and she just sort of seems more, she's obviously there as, you know, kind of eye candy, but you know, for a reason. I mean, she's been, she's clearly been earmarked by Emmerich yeah. because of that. You know, he's in his midlife crisis or whatever. And so th- this is his mistress. But she's, you know, just sort of cutesy and yeah. naive and it, trying to enjoy life and do, you know, whatever it takes to, to please this guy. You don't get the idea that she, you know, she's probably in it for the money in a sense. You know, we can see that she wants a glamorous lifestyle and this is the way to get it. But we don't get the sense, or at least I didn't, that she is only pretending to like Emmerich. Her affection for him seems very sincere. Yeah, yeah. She's not, she's clearly not in it for the money, but she is She is enjoying the affection and the gifts that get showered on her, which was, which is interesting. Because again, her character is a bit, you know, potentially very archetypical, but yeah, they... I think they did a good job of making her seem likable and, for the most part, realistic. Because like you say, she's she's enjoying herself, she's having fun, but she doesn't... You don't get the impression that she's aware of the cost of any of it, really. Yeah. And Marilyn Monroe got the chance to show some good acting chops, I think, towards the end when the cops are kind of uh, they're they're kind of, they're, they're kind of putting the heat on they're they're putting they're pressuring her to to come forward and you know Emmerich has a bit more experience with the criminal underworld and I mean he he he's been very suave the whole time all the way through, but Angela she's she really is just this you know just the sweet girl who's been dragged into it. And so he initially uses her as an alibi to cover for for where he was at the time that a body was discovered after their little tussle over the diamonds. So she's his alibi. 
and you know the cops end up pressing her on it and uh she does a really good job kind of looking back and forth again like it it felt like i was in the room with them when she she's looking at at emmerich she's looking at the cops she doesn't know like do do i tell them like and then of course you know emmerich tells her you know go ahead tell them tell them everything and then she spills her guts and then as she leaves she tells she tells him she's like i'm so sorry like i tried and he says you did you did pretty good all things considered or something like that it's kind of this yeah yeah. Almost kind of like a condescending little pat on the head, but it was it was a nice little, little send off for him. Yeah, well, and and that's when we know that he's resigned himself to his fate, right? Because this is shortly before he goes off into the other room. Yeah, and writes a letter to to the other female character before he shoots himself, and the and the last female character, the third, is Emmerich's wife. Ah. And I think it's interesting the way that we get to dwell on her, and in many ways, I think she's the most tragic. That's right woman presented in the film although they all have the tragedies but you just see the affection and the love that she still has for her husband even though oh yeah um she's bedridden you can see her her vanity but it's not a vanity uh well it's not exactly vanity because she she's just trying to look good for him you see every time that he glances away he's not even really paying attention to her um she's trying to yeah you know fix herself up to to be more, you know, pleasing for him, essentially. Just hoping for him to give any sort of affection, any sort of a glimpse of the love that they shared in the early days. And you can see that, uh, sadly, Emmerich is just, you know, it's not even on his mind. You know, Angela is barely on his mind. You can see that he's he's enjoying having her there as a, as a toy, and he's not cruel to her, per se. Yeah. But, you know... You get the idea that he's just going to take the diamonds and run. He's not going to grab her to go along with him. You know, he's fine. He'll find a new toy when he gets to mm-hmm. when he gets away with the diamonds is presumably what he's thinking. Yeah, I felt really bad for Mrs. Emmerich. Toward the end, when uh, when Emmerich's made up his mind about how things are going to go down, like you said, he starts to write a letter to his wife, uh, kind of, you know, apologizing, letting her know, like, you know, I, I didn't mean for this to, to you know go this way. But then he ends up crumpling it up. And tossing it and then just offing himself anyway, which why do you think, but what's the subtext for that? Do you think he just couldn't stand to put his wife through that? Or do you think he was behaving selfishly when he kind of started writing and then crumpled it up? I don't know. We do because we do start to get a little bit of sympathy for him. You know, every character, I think, gets a moment of sympathy except maybe the police chief, John McIntyre, who I think just gets to come across as sort of a preachy hard nose, Mm -hmm. which is interesting because... You know, on paper, he's the most sympathetic, the most righteous character. But I think he's the one for which the film has the least amount of respect or patience. Yeah. So when he tears up his suicide note, you, know, you get the idea that, yeah, maybe he wants to, to spare her. But at the same time, it's all going to come out, right? Yeah. And I think in the end, he's just having he, – he's not able to, to face what he's done. Not even in the letter is he able to confess and really take responsibility – so he just he just tears it up. Yeah, that, that's one thing I actually really like about this is when you're telling a heist story, there's all these moving parts, you know, all the pieces you need for a standard heist film are there. But it's it's this other stuff like Emmerich's wife being bedridden. That's not essential to the heist plot. I mean, him sleeping around on her, that is relevant to the plot to an extent. But there are several things like that, like, the, you know, the safe cracker being a family man and having a kid. You know, there's there's there are a lot of little things that I could easily imagine a film with far less nuance taking this same story and cutting out all the humanity from it, which is what this movie is just riddled with. It is loaded to the gills with humanity. 
Um, that's that's the way Houston described it. He said this is a this is a human story. He, he gives a little oh cool pitch uh, on like a talk show or something. This is a, this was a supplement on the Criterion Blu-ray, and he says that this is a human story where each of the characters are chasing their vice, and he lists the characters and lists each of their vices. And then in the end, he says, I don't think you'll admire them, <laughs> but I hope they will fascinate you. That's great. And I think that's kind of what he's doing with this film. It's, you know, it's very much a character first. There is a plot. The plot is interesting. But like you're saying, it's the characters that we're really looking at here. How is this affecting their lives and their interactions with each other and their spot in society rather than exactly how they're pulling off the heist? I mean, the heist is it's a it's a sophisticated little plan, but it's not like other heist films where it's increasingly, increasingly complex. And a lot of the joy is how are they going to, you know, get past all these alarm systems? We don't even really spend a lot of time talking about that. It's not a very plot heavy film that way. Yeah. That, that's sort of a, a stereotype of heist films is lots of twists and turns and like the double cross turns out your double cross was planned for and you're actually going to get double crossed. You know, there's there's plenty of that. But in here, yeah, <laughs> a lot of the, the, the heist machinations are very, very straightforward and all of the complexity just comes from the human element. So there's there's two things I still really want to get into here, one of which we talk for just a second about you mentioned it very briefly the police chief's little speech at the end with all the reporters <laughs> yeah i was thinking to myself like holy cow this is it's like it was written today and sent back in time you know as far as it was like they're lecturing me on stuff that's going on right now <laughs> but at the time of recording this we are in a time of of national turmoil uh, i'm sure that every single person who listens to this even years from now will remember this as the time of the george floyd protests uh and the debate on uh police the role they serve in society yeah whether that whether that's too pervasive whether the corruption is systematic or based on individuals and whether they are in fact even necessary is becoming sort of a question that that society is asking right now. Yeah, yeah. And there's something that you kind of see, I think, especially on social media. That's where a lot of this has been. It's, it's pretty much been playing out almost exclusively on the streets and on social media. But uh, there's sort of this, this rebuttal that you hear tossed around fairly often is, okay, if you want to, you know, defund the cops, then get ready for no more cops, you know, get ready for... Like, you'll, you'll be surprised at how much you rely on them and everything. And, you know, this is not a political podcast. I'm sure we don't want to get into any real nitty gritties about either of our positions on any of it. But I, I'd like to share a clip from the Asphalt Jungle. The, uh, the police chief, he's speaking to reporters. And one of the reasons I thought this was so interesting was because in the context of the film, the speech almost feels out of place, which is one of the reasons why I felt like it was a lecture sent from today back to the past, because I was like... The, the guy is basically talking about the importance of, of police officers. But throughout the film, we've spent so much time focusing on the criminals and what they're trying to accomplish and you know their personal situations that I really didn't spend a lot of time thinking about how essential cops are. Not to say I don't think they are essential or anything. It's just the, the speech kind of hit me out of left field. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to go ahead and pull this up. It's not anything strange that there are corrupt officers in police departments. The dirt they're trying to clean up is bound to rub off on some of them, but not all of them. Maybe one out of a hundred. The other 99 are honest men trying to do an honest job. 
Robbery at 193 Scully Avenue. All units, robbery at 193 Scully I know you're police reporters and you hear this all day long, but I want you to listen to your conscience, not just your ears. Wearing a brown gold cap, 12, and shooting at 25 James Boulevard, woman screaming, car 1-2, shooting at 25 James Boulevard, woman screaming. All units, strong arm slugging, 3216 River Drive. We send police assistance to every one of those calls, because they're not just code numbers on a radio beam, they're cries for help. People are being cheated, robbed, murdered, raped. And that goes on 24 hours a day, every day in the year. And that's not exceptional, that's usual. It's the same in every city of the modern world. But suppose we had no police force, good or bad. Suppose we had... Just silent. Nobody to listen, nobody to answer. The battle's finished. The jungle wins. The predatory beasts take over. Think about it. Yeah, you're right. It, you know, it is a, it's an extraordinary little piece in terms of the rest of the film. And it's very performative. Yeah. Uh, you know, almost we get the idea that maybe this is the, the classic little speech that he gives, you know, his rookies or that he tells to, you know, and he does mm-hmm. lectures on policing or something. It has that kind of a feel to it. Like it's all set up and prepared, not just, you know, very out of keeping with the rest of the dialogue of the film, which feels much more natural and laid back than than what he's giving now for these reporters. Yeah, yeah. And you're right. And also in saying that it does seem to tie in with what we're experiencing today more so. And I, I did read that this screenplay is extremely faithful to the novel, except that the novel does have more of the police plot line, mm. which was trimmed down to focus more exclusively on the criminals in the film. But clearly, Houston decides to keep, you know, this scene right at the end of the at the end of the film, this speech. Yeah, he sort of sidesteps into like, it's a couple of bad apples and imagine the world without cops and stuff. And I mean, it's a well it's a well written monologue, you know. But like you say, it is much it is very much more performative than it is conversational, as a lot of the other dialogue is. Yeah, you you get the idea, right? That maybe during the code, by which I mean when studios before the '60s were adhering to certain standards of morality and what and what could be shown mm-hmm. in a Hollywood picture, and you know, it it was at the time mandated basically that you kind of have to show that crime doesn't pay. Mm. And so you got to have the, you know, so we've waded through and seen and sympathized with all these characters. So this does feel like it could be sort of a... Slight counterbalance. Yeah, a quick, like, it was said of movies back then that they were the most immoral pictures imaginable until the last 10 minutes. You know, and it was sort of, it was often sort of an excuse to polish things up. You could have the the slinky babes and the all the sex and the violence and the <laughs> fun and mayhem and then in the last 5 minutes of the film you have to quickly you know wrap it all up and say now don't you do this you know yeah. and then you can end the movie and it has a little bit of a feel there but but i think Houston as well i don't know i still get the idea that McIntyre the the police chief throughout this film every moment that we see him that he's just he's not a sympathetic character. He doesn't come across well. And I think that Houston is doing that on purpose. Mm-hmm. I think that he's showing, you know, I mean, one of the first things we see, right? Like these are dangerous criminals. You know, we see that they're not murderers, they're not bloodthirsty. They're essentially kind of, you know, they're a mix of family men and professionals with their own little uh, vices. 
and crime isn't necessarily the, the, shown as their vice. Their vice are these other little passions that they have on the side. Yeah, the crime is a means to an end for them. Right, exactly. But there is that moment between McIntyre, who just gave the speech that we heard, and Dietrich, who is the, the dirty cop who's on Cobby's payroll, where he's hauled in and he says, like, you know, look, we need to put pressure on. We need to be shutting down the, you know, we need more arrests. We need this and this. Mm-hmm. And Dietrich says, well, I mean, I don't know. Like, people like to bet on the horses. Like, what does it matter? And McIntyre is not having that. He's not interested. He doesn't care. What the law says goes. He doesn't care what the law is. You get the idea that if the law changed tomorrow and now betting on horses is okay, well, then he's fine with it. But while it's against the law, he's not going to tolerate it. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It it just seems like he's very black and white. You know, he's not going to look and say, okay, this guy might be dangerous. This hoodlum just, uh, you know, just wants to go gamble, just wants to go have a drink or whatever, you know. It's not really going to harm anybody. Yeah. He doesn't differentiate. The law is the law. Yeah. That's actually, I was just going to say, he actually reminded me a bit of Javert from Les Miserables. Les Miserables. Les, Les Mis. From uh, where, where he equates the law to God's law. Yeah. It seems like he's less hung up on the nature of the law rather than just the upholding of the law. And that's, that's one of the things that kind of uh, – comes through a little bit in this monologue as, you know, quote unquote preachy as it might seem, it almost sort of comes through as his fear of the chaos that would take over in a world without the kind of order that he wants to enforce. Yeah, yeah. And in that way, I I think that is maybe his bit of sympathy is that his lack of nuance is because he sees the nuance as literally dangerous. Yeah, which again, like you said, he's probably one of the least sympathetic characters in the film, and even he makes some pretty valid points. That's that's one thing I love about this film is just each character you you can understand why they do what they do, even if you disagree. Being able to understand why a character is behaving the way they are, yeah, does so much to invest you in their life. It does so much to add to tension because you want them to accomplish their goals, which is strange. Even if you don't agree with their goals, just knowing what they what they want and seeing that it could be difficult can draw you in. Well, another thing, Chris, I wanted to just at least mention, and uh, you can jump in with your thoughts here. Mm-hmm. The The way this film is shot, the cinematographer Harold Rosen had a, an Oscar-lauded career. And this film, I think, is sort of uh, much less stylized, as I mentioned in the beginning, than a lot of noir films. Yeah. We get a couple moments. There's Dick's going into passing a, a bouncer at one point, and you get sort of these uh, shadows and everything, but a lot of it is kind of toned down. Th- this movie, I think, is efficient, and you don't really run into a lot of moments where you're going to note the visuals. Yeah. You know, yeah. Th- it's not like a, you know, like a Wes Anderson film where afterwards you're going to comment about how it was shot. But it is shot in a way that I found its visual language to be uh, very compelling and very in keeping with the story they were trying to tell. Two things really stick out to me. The first is the way that they used close-ups. You have a lot of different close-ups on on people, and I think it allows the film to be very spare and to just sort of clip along without going into a lot of dialogue. There's not a lot of exposition. There's not a lot of explaining things. You just get little moments, kind of like the moments we mentioned with Doc and Emmerich in the interview, or looks where we see how Dahl actually feels about Dix, even though he's sort of oblivious to it. Mm -hmm. Those little things that are conveyed through close-ups. And then 
the way in which people move around through the sets. Like you're talking about that moment with the shot and the way the camera flips to the side there. Yeah. Uh, the gunshot, that is. And we, and we get to watch that. Or basically everything that deals with the Dick's character. He's just filmed as, I mean, I'm sure that Sterling Hayden is a, you know, a, a big man, but he just feels like a giant. Yeah. <laughs> the way that they film even his hands and the way that he looms over Doc and Kobe and these other characters, we just get the idea that he's this, this, this great beast moving around through, you know, just this predatory jungle animal that can really just wipe out anything that comes in front of him. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know, what, what did you think about the way that the film was, the shot, the look of the film? Did anything in particular stand out to you? Um, now that you mention it, I think most of the shots of Dix tend to kind of clip him near the top of the frame. I think that they allow him to use the full vertical real estate of each shot. For instance, when Dix comes in looking for money and then Kabi uh, sort of tells him that he, he owes him, so he's not going to do it. And then... yeah. Cobby likes to talk the talk, but as soon as he insults Dix, you know, Dix is like, what are you saying? Like, almost kind of like, you dishonor me, you know? And then Cobby almost immediately is like, oh, gee, Dix, you don't have to get so bent out of shape. I'm sorry, you know? Like, his own bookie is, like, apologizing profusely to him. And in a lot of that scene, Dix is kind of in the back away from the camera and Cobby's more towards the front. But even with that framing, I think it only serves to show just how big he is, like... Even in the background, he he takes up about as much of the shot as Kabi does. And then, of course, you know, you have Kabi just apologizing profusely. And then right after he leaves, he's like, oh, that guy, huh? He's trying to, trying to kind of shake it off a little bit. but Right. <laughs> two other moments visually that stand out for me mm-hmm. are essentially the two goodbye moments for Doc and Dix. Yes. That where we get some, you know, Dix making his way, you know, bleeding out, but stubbornly determined just to reach the farm where, or the the ranch, I suppose, where he grew up, you know, raising horses, no matter, you know, at, at whatever cost. And, it's, and, you know, eventually just passing out in the field dead as Dahl, you know, runs in vain for, for help. And the horses just sort of gather around him. Mm. And there he is with his horses, but but too late. Yeah, uh, that's a great shot. And then yeah, yeah. And then the great shot, I think, as well, the little sequence that where we get to see uh, a girl essentially dancing, essentially hired as a dancer in a way, for Doc as he's making his getaway. You know, he's got a chance to get out of there at the <laughs> end. He's got his jewels. He's set to go. Uh, things didn't go according to plan, but. If he makes it, he's going to do all right. You know, he's got a, a big bundle of jewels there. He's pulled it off. He's got his brains. He's got his plan to get to Mexico. He's got a sympathetic fellow German cabbie who's going to take him all the way. And he's got it made, but for his one pesky vice that's going to get him caught up. And that's essentially that he's, uh, well... I guess you'd say he's a pervert. He's uh, <laughs> uh, sort of got a compulsion for young girls, not um, yeah children necessarily, but uh, just just young naive girls that he's clearly you know far below his age, and he's sort of obsessed with them. And he sees these these teenagers hanging out at the gas stop where the cabbie stops to to fill up. Yeah, and one of the girls is complaining that the jukebox 
nickels have run out and her, you know, her teenage date doesn't have the money to bankroll another song. And <laughs> Doc pulls out, you know, a big wad of nickels and throws them down and basically says, here you go, go ahead and dance. And she goes, okay. And she just really starts to put on a performance. It, I love the way it's shot. You know, you see where he's looking and her and her dancing, which is at once sort of graceful and akimbo. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the way, little side note, in terms of depicting youthfulness, she's a great pick. Her name escapes me, but her primary claim to fame is that she uh, she was often, I don't know what you'd say, a rotoscope model, a, a reference model for Disney films. Really? Playing princesses like she plays um, huh, no kidding. Aurora, a Sleeping Beauty, you know, and doesn't play her, but she was the animation model. She dances and moves around and... You know, the the animators followed her movements. So she's sort of a, a, you know, the innocent Disney princess. And we get to see her dancing around as Doc sort of eyes her lustily. And that ends up being the time that was pivotal for him to get away. And he, he didn't take it and doesn't get away with his job. Speaking of the scene composition, I love the way that this final, that this little dance number is shot where as she's dancing for him and he's kind of eyeing her dolefully, you know, the camera follows her over to the window and then she sort of sidesteps and we see these two cops just looking down, leering through the blinds as they, they notice Doc sitting in there. That's such a good reveal. Yeah. Shortly at that moment, you know, his his driver who Doc has been, you know, he, he offered him a lot of money to drive him really far. And the guy seems like a pretty good, pretty good wheelman, pretty good wingman. He's suggesting, you know, we should probably get out of here. And Doc is like, no, no, that's. Just give me a second, you know. <laughs> Even the whole way that was handled, we were talking about the cinematography, but just just his whole vice, I thought was was shown in a way that was, you know, it's not exactly subtle. It's matter of fact. It isn't celebrated, but it isn't. You know, we don't leer along with him. We see that he notices at one place a calendar with pinup girls, mm-hmm. and that he feels compelled to go over and flip through and look at all the pinup girls. But, you know, he's not like licking his lips and we're not like following around, like watching him, mm-hmm. you know, eye different <laughs> women or anything. Not necessarily lascivious. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But we get the idea that, you know, this is <laughs> this is his vice. And it's like Houston said, yeah, each each character here has their, their vice that they're going to follow to their doom, essentially. Yeah. There's a quote from a, a, a book on noir filmmaking called The American Noir Rehabilitation. There's a they, they talk about this scene in particular. And it says, uh, of the scene, they said, Doc squanders his almost successful escape by waiting until another song from a jukebox paid for by himself with ulterior motives is over, and a young girl he has been staring at stops dancing. On an earlier occasion, he had freely admitted that, and ultimately, he and everybody else lived for their vice, like he said. With the stolen diamonds in his possession, the roadblocks already behind him in a taxi at his service, he was closer to the realization of his dream than ever, which was Mexico, lots of beautiful women. Uh, but he lives for his vice one time too many. Lacking his usual rationality and self-discipline for the duration of a song, he risks everything and loses it. On the other hand, he is absolutely true to himself in these minutes, which makes him a particularly authentic figure. He is himself one of those men, the best and most efficient of whom suffer from unpredictable aberrations of the ego and emotions, about whom he has once been thinking. Which I love because I think in the end, everything is doomed from the outset because of these men and their vices. And at the same time, there's sort of this, I don't know, beautiful honesty 
in the way these characters meet their ends. You know, it's uh, similar with Dix kind of just clearly bleeding out. At one point, a doctor says he doesn't have enough blood to keep a chicken alive. <laughs> and he, he drives to the old family ranch and, you know, dies surrounded by his horses. Like, there's just, it's strange because, you know, there's this air of hopelessness to it of, you know, there's no way these guys are going to make it out of here. And if only they didn't have, you know, their ego or their their various vices that they're giving into you know, they could have made it. But at the same time, if they didn't, they wouldn't be them. It's that sort of essential, it's inevitable. Yeah. It's required. Exactly. Yeah. It was, it was a fantastic film. I have to say, probably probably one of my favorite heist films I've ever seen, which is, which is saying something considering the actual heist was about 11 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so to, to sum up with this one then, who do you think the, the film is... Four. Who's going to enjoy the asphalt jungle? Oh boy. If you are a fan of character studies, you will absolutely love it. It really is a masterpiece of character study, I think, for multiple characters. And if you're if you're into that, if if you're if you're happy to go along for the ride with any story, as long as the characters are interesting and they have something going on, this is a great movie for you. I think personally, if you liked Breaking Bad specifically for the character element, I think you would like this film. It reminded me of that slightly, of the human side of crime and vices and how they do us in. Yeah, it's the line that Imrik says, that after all, crime is just a left-handed form of human endeavor. <laughs> that's right. And that's really what you see. You know, it's just human endeavor, but it's, uh, it's, just, it's on the wrong side of the law that uh, society has set up. Yeah, I mean, honestly, you watch this film, I, th- I think the last thing you would think about Dicks and Doc and Gus and the, gosh, the safe cracker whose name I keep forgetting, Louis, Louis, you look at these guys, the last thing you would think is that they are getting into crime because they're lazy and want to make a quick buck. You know, it's, they're, they're hard workers just like anybody else. Yeah. I mean, it looks like hard work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But yeah, I think uh, if you're into any of that, and also, of course, if you're into crime films, not necessarily, uh, if, if you like films about the ugly side of crime, I don't know if you'll find it here. They don't really pretty it up. They don't make the crime look beautiful and appealing, but it's just, it's honest and it doesn't feel like it's trying to be any darker or gritty than it needs to be. Bo, I attempted quite graciously, I should say, (laughs) to match your film with my response to it. Although I have to say, I was hard-pressed to find a good streaming original that covered heists and uh, (laughs) things of that nature. But uh, the one that I picked out was Wheelman, starring Frank Grillo. Bo, tell us... Tell us a little bit about that old that old Wheelman. Yeah, Wheelman. So it's a Netflix original crime film from 2017 by first-time feature filmmaker, uh, writer, and director Jeremy Rush. The movie follows a Wheelman. The plot is a little bit convoluted, but simple at the same time. You've got you know your stereotypical Wheelman. You've got a, a driver. He's he's good with the car. We find out that he's sort of an amateur, maybe, or at least a kind of a washed-up uh, race car driver who's done some time. He's got in with the mob, needs to pay back some money. And so he also, in kind of a matter-of-fact way, is trying to just be a good professional wheelman. He gets hired by a handler to go out and take criminals on you know, heists or whatever, He's just uh, not going to ask questions, doesn't want to know anybody's name, kind of a guy, picks up a couple criminals. They don't even seem to know each other. It's all sort of organized. He pulls up to a bank. They go in. They're going to shoot it up. And he's just there to 
take the money, get it to a drop-off point, and go home to his his uh, his daughter, his young teenage daughter who's staying with him yeah. for his turn after the divorce. Presumably a fallout from his stint in jail for doing something like this. Who knows? Where everything starts to go haywire and where the plot really kicks in is during this job, this first job, this quick bank job, which we'd spend very little time on at all. We see a couple of hoods that we just met a minute ago. They go in, you know, they shoot out a couple of lights, they grab some money. And while he's waiting for them in the car, he gets a, a call from someone who basically says, hey, I'm the guy in charge. I'm the one who hired, who talked to your handler and arranged this job. Are you there? What are you doing? He's like, yeah, you know, and he can tell that the guy, you know, has is able to trace him, has his number, you know, clearly somebody is up to speed on affairs. And he says, what I need you to do is leave the crew behind. And, you know, he's sort of flabbergasted. He's going, what, what, why, you know, I don't, that's not procedure. And he says, yeah, you got to do it. You got to do it now because they're coming out. And also just to, you know, add some spice to it. He says, oh, they're, they're going to kill you. Like they've been told to kill you anyway. So, so at that, you know, he sort of, as soon as they shove the money in the trunk, he speeds off, leaving the two gangsters, you know, standing in the dust, flipping him the bird or whatever. <laughs> and from this moment on, the movie is basically just this sort of labyrinthine cruising around the city, never really stopping, arguing between several different callers as everybody, as he's trying to figure out what's going on. And whether he's being used or how or which one of his handlers and he, he can't get a hold of people. And and as he's trying to figure out why he's been told to leave these people and trying to juggle the different people that are calling him, giving him orders. We've also got a little bit of family drama in because he's he's fielding calls from his ex-wife, from his daughter. And all of this is taking place, uh, we should mention because it's very distinctive, from the point of view of the car. Every shot in this film is either from the car, usually in the back seat, or looking at the car directly from the side. I think we get like maybe 10 shots that don't happen in or looking in to the car. Yeah, yeah. Um, and those are mostly just shots of him moving from one car to another car. So that's essentially the the plot of the film. It's got a it's got a gritty feel to it. Um, it's you know, it's got um, R-rated violence, R-rated language, and that sort of grittiness to it. But it's still mm-hmm. kind of hitting at an element of you know, it's high octane kind of thrills. It's tense, but it's uh, fun, and that it's you know, definitely sort of supposed to be on the grittier spectrum of your popcorn type movies. I think. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, that that's it. It's a sort of tight, short, speedy little car ride through this city is basically this guy is trying to figure out how to solve this puzzle and survive as mm-hmm. essentially everybody's out to kill him. Yeah, no, that's, that's about my takeaway as well. I, I thought I did think it was interesting because, uh, like you said, the film takes place almost exclusively inside of this car. There's a few times where you can almost you can almost kind of feel the director regretting it. Re- regretting the decision to, to base it in the car you can almost kind of feel the movie uh, just kind of cameraman's trying to poke his head out the window to get out just like i just need to because uh, there's a there's a moment where uh the wheel man pulls up a- after trying for half the movie to find clay his uh his personal handler or his his helper guy he finally locates him at a bar 
and the camera stays in the car while he runs out and grabs the guy and then runs back, tosses him into the car after roughing him up, and then the rest of the conversation takes place inside the car. And, I mean, I get it. He's a wheel man. He's got places to be. If he holds still, he might get in trouble. It's just kind of funny that this isn't the first time it's happened when single location films, which, you know, obviously the movie travels around a lot, but as far as taking place entirely in a car, there's moments where you can tell, like, okay, this definitely would have been a scene more appropriate for something other than just sitting in a car, I think. Yeah, it's... I was going to bring that up as well. It it does feel to stretch a little bit. You know, like, we get the idea that at some point... Early in the design of this film, the Rush probably said, oh, what if we made it all from the point of view of the car? And then sort of plans the plot to adhere to that conceit that he's given himself. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there are some awkward moments. I, I will mention at the beginning of the film, I really liked the way that that was done. Like we, at first we just see we don't we're, we're given this sort of strange out of we don't realize the context that we're in. We're we're sitting in the back seat of a car, you know, we the audience, and lights flicker on, and we're in a garage, and we see a mechanic kind of moving around. He's doing this or that, and it's all quiet. And then it pulls out, and it's very reminiscent of. I mean, I think it had to be directly influenced by a film that we've already mentioned, uh, Le Samurai, the the French mm. sort of neo noir uh, '60s crime film. Uh, which also focuses on a guy who has to do a lot of driving around. And uh, so in that scene, it's interesting because I think it helps to create a sense of tension because Whenever a film mind... goes through the setup of putting you, the audience, in the background, by which I mean in your foreground, they place objects. It gives us a sense of peering in. It's a sense of voyeurism. We are now watching what is happening. Instead of it being presented to us on the stage, it's more like we're crammed into some corner of the stage yeah, yeah. rather than sitting in the seats looking at what's happening. We're kind of peeking through. And that, I think, can create a lot of tension. I know at the beginning of the film, you know, I wasn't uh, really knowing what, what I ought to expect. It wasn't maybe the best sort of suspense, but I kept kind of expecting like a, a bomb to go off or something <laughs> because of that of that placement. Yeah, yeah. That, you know, it gives you that idea that you're watching. We know that something's kind of going to happen. It's interesting because it, it does allow you to feel how hunted he is. He's He's mobile. He's a good driver and he can get around, but he's also limited by this car that he's in and he can speed around and he can move, but he's not free. And neither are we as the audience. You know, we don't get any sweeping shots of the city as we're watching the cars, you know, maneuver past each other on the streets like we might in another film. We're contained very much in this. And so where that might limit the story in some aspects, it also, I think, well, constrains us as a, as a viewer and perhaps serves to yeah. show how constrained the wheelman is mm -hmm. in this scenario where he's essentially being used as a pawn as all the as this power struggle happens. Yeah. Yeah. Ironically, considering our last episode we just talked about Bird Box and this was something that I had complained about with that film, which was the film felt like it was meant to be a bit claustrophobic, but they kept giving us these big wide shots of things. Yeah. Whereas Wheelman, they actually even though you can feel the discomfort at times I think that they did a good job of bringing us into his world, which, I mean, that was the whole point of my complaint with Bird Box was they did it. They had a hard time generating empathy with the scenarios that the characters were in. Whereas with this, 
you definitely find yourself pulled into the tension of, of all of it. As he's kind of frantically driving around, we're basically in the backseat or the passenger seat with him as he's trying to sort everything out. It, and uh, to that extent, I don't know if this is if this is set out right, but having it all take place inside the car, it also almost feels like it takes place in real time. You know, there's yeah, there's not there's not really much you. Can, I mean, there's nothing that you can cut away to. You know, there's yeah. So a lot of it is just kind of one thing after another of, and the 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 frustration really mounts as he tries to get to the bottom of it all. Yeah, that that gives it its energy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. As well, because we're so constrained and things are just happening as we're zipping along. I don't know if it's quite in real time, but it's yeah, one of those yeah. that. You know, I mean, it doesn't matter. It feels like real time anyway. I, I, I'll mention this as well. <laughs> the This conceit, this gimmick, this quirk, whatever you want to say, however you think it works, of filming within the car also means that we spend, you know, that the Wheelman is essentially a character who exists from the waist up. <laughs> and so we get a lot of we get a lot of close ups. And uh, remind me his name, Frank. Frank Grillo. Frank Grillo. Is one of these guys that I think, man, what sort of choices did you make in life that with that head of hair, you're a wheel man? <laughs> he's he's so exquis- exquisitely quaffed, <laughs> and we spend so much time looking at his exquisitely quaffed hair that I think, God, there's got to be some good money that you could be making right now, you know, in ads for like head and shoulder shampoo <laughs> or something. Like, why are you, why are you, yeah, you know running guns or whatever for the mob when you could be living the high life. You see that head of hair? You're in the wrong business, friend. But really, so so Frank Frank Grillo, in a, in a, aside from, you know, getting to show off his perfectly quaffed hair, uh, really has an interesting sort of beast of a job to pull off uh, in terms of the actor yeah. as well as the character. Um, you know, he's just got to sit there on the phone, you know, he's he's got earbuds in and he's just yelling and screaming at people and creating all this tension and acting to nobody. You know, he gets to act to the, the to the steering wheel. Yeah. A couple times he gets to interact with an actual human, you know, the a face that we that we and he can see. Mm-hmm. Uh for the most part, he's just sort of giving these these big monologues which you know, has got to be yeah, yeah. a tricky thing to do in a in a film. And I feel that he that he pulls it off, you know. I mean, this film strives for a sort of gritty realism, like we've mentioned in the in the dialogue. Mm-hmm. But in terms of believing his character and selling the dialogue and plot that he has to work with, I personally never felt that he really falters. I think he carries it all the way through. Yeah, I thought he was terrific. I, I've seen him in a handful of things before. I I think he was in Warrior. I think that might have been the first film I saw him in with Joel Edgerton and uh, Tom Hardy. Uh, and of course, he's had he's enjoyed a pretty decently long stint. Like maybe it was just two movies or three, I guess, with Marvel. He played uh, Crossbones or something. He, he he's one of the one of the Shield agents who goes bad. But uh, he he's always been fun to watch. But yeah, I've, I I don't think I've ever had to see him turn it up like he does in this one. And I agree, his his performance is one of the saving graces of the film. He, he's a lot of fun to watch, and seeing him act against, he, he's basically in in a 
I guess a less surreal version of what Ian McKellen had to put up with on the set of The Hobbit, where he's talking to floating green balls yeah. and pretending that they're hobbits and dwarves. Yeah. Whereas Frank, Frank Grillo has to talk to his phone and pretend it's a mob boss, you know, he's <laughs> at which he succeeds. Yeah, he does. He does a very good job emoting. I think. Yeah. I don't want to be I don't want to be clutching my pearls here on the podcast because Lord knows I love my I love my gritty films. But I did find it a bit a, a bit. uh I'm not going to say offensive, not even necessarily excessive, but just a bit funny at the sheer presence of profanity in this movie. Yeah, so not not a movie to watch with your parrot. I mean, it's kind of Tarantino-esque, I guess, but uh, I think for a film that is so heavily focused on dialogue, you would expect the dialogue to be a bit more well-written, I guess, whereas a lot of this film, you know, we try to keep this podcast yeah, like PG thirteen at worst, I guess. There's a, there's a lot of listen up, you mother effer, you know f. Yeah. I, I I think at one point I inadvertently counted. I was like, I think there were eleven f bombs in that sentence. Chris, there is a character called <laughs> Mother Effer in this film. <laughs> if you look at the credits, he is credited as Mother Effer. <laughs> Funny thing is, looking it up on Google, he's credited as Mohawk Man. I think Google's like, oh, kids are going to Google this movie. <laughs> yeah, I guess the, the was it was too risque for Google because, yeah, IMDb shows him as the uh, – just as Mother Effer, which he, yeah, goes through that little speech where he says that's what he wants to be called. That's right. Yeah, he, he gives himself that name. So, yeah, they're definitely diving deep with this profanity game. Yeah, it, it permeates every every inch of it. I, I it is a it is a complex story and you know I've I'm I'm a grown up I've seen The Departed I know I know that uh, that the, the <laughs> I know that the seedy criminal underworld is full of potty mouths but no I, <laughs> and they use that yeah. word potty mouths I believe Matt Damon calls Jack Nicholson a potty mouth in The Departed at least three times yeah yeah stop using that potty language or get out of my crime hole but it's it's just uh, I think The Departed has some fantastic dialogue, as do a lot of Tarantino's films. Yeah. I, I guess it's it's the dialogue struck me as a food that the chef forgot to season, so he just dumped a ton of pepper onto it right before you got served. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, it's a comedy because, I mean, on the one hand, you know, this is a movie that just keeps zipping along and everybody's, uh, you know, mm -hmm. racing around and shouting and trying to figure <laughs> out who's trying to kill whom and all of that so there's not a lot of time yeah. for you know witty parlance <laughs> and it is a bit more you know unlike tarantino the dialogue is meant to be more gritty than stylized that's true but yeah. it is you know it's like someone who's sat down and rather than like genuinely diving into like a certain world and the way that world talks it's kind of like well Let's see. I don't know. They're street toughs. They're bad guys. Like the F word's a pretty bad word, right? They must use that word a lot. <laughs> and so there's just that tinge of artificiality to it. There is. Yeah. Because, you know, I mean, you listen to something like um, – this, this is an odd conversation for us to be having. But you listen to something like um, uh, the dialogue in uh, Goodwill Hunting. Oh, right? yeah, yeah. Which is also quite crass. But you've got their two Bostonians – writing, you know, a dialect that they have either lived in themselves or come across a lot. And so it has that kind of, you know, whether or not the vulgarity is merited is sort of a, a separate question from how authentic it feels. And I think that's really what we're calling into question here is the authenticity, not the merit of it, yeah. which is a separate thing. Yeah, exactly. I think 
I guess that's kind of the weird dichotomy. It's a fast-moving, nonstop action flick set in the gritty criminal underground. Yeah. But it's also, you know, it's shot in such a way that it's almost kind of like a would-be indie darling, you know, with the uh, you know the little limitation they give of staying inside the car and whatnot. They're trying to make this kind of almost like an... I mean, you know they're not going for an art house film, but there is that art house affectation of, of having this limitation they put on themselves. I was going to say, actually... Um, I wanted to bring this up. We talked a little bit about how in the Asphalt Jungle, there was this kind of parallel to police officers. And you had that speech at the end where the guy was talking about a world without cops and whatnot. I don't know if you noticed this, Bo. You you probably did. But I didn't notice it till after I had mulled over the film for like a day or two when I realized I don't think there was a single cop in Wheelman. Yeah, you're right. I think you hear some sirens at one point. Yeah, some background sirens. But I think even... You may see, maybe see like a police car or something, but I think even the, isn't it the case that they pass him? I think, I thought there was like a moment, maybe I'm wrong, where he feels like maybe he's going to get pulled over and then they go past him, but. Yeah, there might be. I'm just, because it was funny, because seeing this fresh after Asphalt Jungle, I was thinking, you know, oh crap, he's got a a trunk full of cash. That's going to, you know, that's going to paint a target on his back after a bank robbery he's just gone down, you know? Yeah, you know, it is surprisingly bereft of law enforcement, like that they really don't play into it it's it's all about which branch of the mob or or you know are the the henchmen that he left behind going to get him or is it going to be mm-hmm. this crime family or that crime family he never even seems really concerned about uh whether the police are are going to get there or not and i don't know if that's you know a a choice that was made because the script is already pretty complex for the runtime that we have or whether that's a kind of a commentary on the you know criminal degradation of the whatever yeah i don't know if we know what city he's in do we i don't recall yeah i don't, I don't know i don't know if they tell us but i think i always assumed it was new york or chicago or something yeah you know and that's something i wondered about too i mean what did you think about the chaos that's happening i mean it's true that he seems you know efficient and professional and he does keep moving around and i sort of wondered like i think of something like no country for old men right where you have anton Chigur who is able to get away with crimes sort of like in broad daylight just because of he doesn't have the sort of natural guilt or fear that other people seem to have. He just commits them so audaciously that it's almost makes him invisible. Mm-hmm. And I wondered, you know, is that sort of the chaos that we're seeing here? Like the speed and the sheer amount of crime? Because, I mean, at one point, there's like a machine gun battle in the streets, <laughs> you know, and he's pointing guns at people. And yeah. there's all sorts of stuff going on. And yet you're, you know, it's like you say, we never run into any police officers. We don't run into like crowds of people saying, hey, what's going on? It's literally just yeah, yeah. the our protagonist, the wheel man, and the various either buddies or antagonists uh-huh. and that's it yeah you know, those are the only people we see exactly it's like part way through i was thinking hey this is the world that the police chief at the end of asphalt jungle was trying to warn us about you know <laughs> and it's interesting because criminals run in the streets i feel like i was going to mention this i i think almost that the asphalt jungle is not a bad title for the for the asphalt jungle but it is sort of arbitrary like you could replace it with another Title and I almost feel like the Asphalt Jungle would be a better title for Wheelman because <laughs> you're really just you know it's set, it sets up this city as this like 
sprawling hellscape of of danger and crime, and he's literally peeling around on the asphalt, you know, driving everywhere, and it feels like you could call this movie the asphalt jungle. <laughs> yeah, no, that's very true. Yeah, it's funny just because when I think about the concept of a wheelman, I think about, I mean, for me, one of my favorite wheelman movies in recent memory was uh, Edgar Wright's Baby Driver, which, I mean, we can, that mm-hmm. that's not qualified for this podcast, for it is neither Criterion nor a, a, a streaming original, which is unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. But uh, just give a quick shout out, uh, because the reason that it's such an interesting dynamic with that movie, because it's kind of a similar concept, actually. You have a, a, a an amazing driver who is in over his head with bad people, and if he could have had a choice, he wouldn't have gotten into this business. That's kind of Baby Driver in a nutshell as well. Yeah, yeah. But with Baby Driver, with a lot of, I mean, when they're when they're driving, when he's when he's being the wheel man, there's no one to get away from except for the cops. So there's, you get a lot of chases where he's like peeling out down corners. This really awesome car chase choreography with these cops chasing after him, because that's that's why you need a wheel man. If 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 there's no cops, you could just you just walk away from the bank, you know, and just stroll off into the shadows. So the fact that we never actually see the element that necessitates a wheelman kind of leaves it feeling a a little bit, I don't know, hollow, a little bit stunted. But I mean, at the same time, you know, maybe it's like you say, maybe it's like no country for old men. Maybe, maybe the problem isn't that they couldn't afford some cop extras or a police car or something, or, but maybe they're trying to make, yeah, maybe they're trying to make some kind of statement, but I, I couldn't tell you what that statement is other than... I don't know. I mean, there certainly is a lot of danger just presented in the mess that he's in. I guess maybe, you know, it's just sort of implied. Like, you you understand that, you know, in the way that you keep anticipating the police showing up, maybe that's sort of the reason why you don't need them to. Yeah, no, that's true. Because that it creates that urgency. And then you're dealing with, you know, these two mobs coming after him and and all of that and and that that makes me wonder Chris what did you think of I mean did you feel like we talked about this with with the asphalt jungle but did you feel like wheelman was going to to make it did you think mm. that he was going to be able to pull this off do you think he was going to survive that's a good question um it's weird because I mean this was a more action-packed more violent arguably much darker film than the asphalt jungle but somehow I think I I think I personally felt a bit more tension during Asphalt Jungle, mainly because there was a lot of buildup and we got the chance to really like these characters. We barely know our wheelman before he gets in over his head. But there's also this kind of element, and maybe I've just read one too many screenwriting books or just seen too many movies or I'm just too familiar with the tropes. But, you know, right from the outset, very or very early on, it's demonstrated that we should like this guy. And, you know, the way a filmmaker does that is by showing these little bits and snippets of humanity, little, little like, you know, what, what's, what is that? It's the opposite of kick, kick the dog, pet the dog, save the cat, save the cat. Yeah, I guess that would be it. <laughs> this, uh, this little dynamic where it's like, Hey, see this guy, he's a swell guy. The, again, this was something in, uh, the, the film 400 blows by Francois Truffaut. It's like the one element of culture I had in my life before he started making me watch all these movies. Bo, <laughs> I, I loved 400 blows. Cause there's this moment early in that movie where this little kid, we don't know him all that well, but almost one of the first things we see happen is that he gets falsely accused of, I think it was like shooting spitballs or something out of a, out of a tube and it wasn't his fault. And he gets falsely punished for it. And you immediately sympathize with this kid. And so for the rest of the film, you just kind of feel bad for him, which kind of pulls you in and switches on your empathy. And I think to an arguably more cliched and lesser extent in this movie, we have a phone call with his daughter 
on his way to the robbery. We still don't really even know what he's heading for. We just know that he's driving to a place. And we have a conversation with his daughter where he talks to her about dating. Don't stay out too late. You're only 13, etc. And he seems like a very concerned father. But yeah, right from the outset, we like him a lot. And it's not even... I don't want to complain about this too much because I, I do think Wheelman was a decent movie. But thinking about Asphalt Jungle, the movie never tells us outright to like any of these characters. In fact, the way that Dix is portrayed, it's almost kind of like the movie's telling me, you know, if you don't like this guy, that's cool. <laughs> like, yeah. you're under no obligation to like this guy, Dix. It's it's true. I mean, the characters there, they're interesting because they're so nuanced, but they're very fault-forward characters. I mean, you're almost introduced to them by their vices. Exactly. And I, I started it out thinking that Dix would be a villain in the film. I thought he was going to be a thug and a, a, you know, a, a bad guy. So the more, and of course, the more time we spend with him, the more I was like, oh, this guy's growing on me. And, which I think is one of the reasons why the tension works so well is because by the time that Dix is actually at risk, that's almost the exact moment that I, that I don't want anything bad to happen to him. Whereas uh, with Wheelman, you know, that conversation with his daughter, it's very clearly shown that this, you know, he's a good, he's a good guy, you know, whatever happens from this moment on, know that he's got a daughter and he's a good, good family man, good father. And then the very next moment we see him with these, these, with the mother effer. And I can't even remember the other guy's name because I think, I think that guy's Ben. Oh, just Ben? <laughs> yeah. Just, just Ben. Yeah. Huh? Ben and mother effer. Ben and mother effer. That sounds yeah. like a Calvin and Hobbes spinoff. Dynamic duo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And these guys both seem pretty messed up. And then from that moment on, we're just introduced to darker and darker characters. And so I think in answer to your question, the stakes are so clearly set from the beginning that he he may be a criminal, but he is clearly the good guy. And all these crime, all, all these, these, these crime hole dwellers that he's having to deal with, they're all clearly the bad guys. These mob bosses and these thugs and these bank robbers—they're all, yeah, they're all just pure irredeemable scum. You know, they're they're all just awful. So it's so in your mind, you're thinking that if this guy lost, if he if he died, I thought you know maybe he would have some daring act of self-sacrifice. Maybe he'd let himself get off to save his daughter and his wife, his ex-wife, or something. But for the most part, I. It, to me, it felt like the movie wasn't trying to say enough to do anything other than, you know, the hero makes it out okay in the end. Whereas with The Asphalt Jungle, the story felt so organic that it really it really felt like anything could happen at any moment. They, they, the chaos felt real rather than just a simple source of stress. Yeah, I mean, they're both, they're both thrillers and, you know, easily situated within popular entertainment. Mm-hmm, yeah. But... The Wheelman to me felt more like, you know, uh, a gritty kind of popcorn film, which I don't knock it for. Yeah. Um, and less like a film, you know, that's going to have that's going to have some gut punch at the end to kind of leave me with something to think about. Mm-hmm. It's more about here is a, an interestingly photographed high energy wild ride through the city, you know, over one one night as all this stuff is happening and you're just supposed to kind of get wrapped up in that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I was less, I suppose there's more of a tension in the fact that at any moment, bloody violence could erupt, Mm -hmm. which is not something that you're really expecting from the asphalt jungle, you know, maybe just in part because of the time period when it was made. Mm -hmm. But um, so there's that kind of tension, but yet there wasn't the tension of, for me, of thinking like, you know, it was kind of a puzzle, like, how is he going to solve this? But not, um, 
is he going to wind up dead? Because I feel like yeah, I, I felt that I knew he was going to pull through. Yeah, yeah. I think to that extent, you're right. Like, they definitely succeeded at making me feel tension and feel suspense and wonder what would happen next. Because, yeah, I didn't, I didn't necessarily think he would get out of it, but they did do a good enough job making me curious as to how it might get resolved. It wasn't it wasn't on the level of a Marvel movie where you could, you know, you could make it ad-lib, swap out a couple of nouns and verbs and it all ends up about the same way in the end anyhow, you know? It 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 earned its traction, I think. It it does set up, you know, almost this impossible scenario where you're wondering, you know, how can he? That's maybe to me I think that was the best mm-hmm. aspect of the film. Sometimes the photography felt a little too limiting, sometimes it was interesting, but I think the most engaging part of the film was just wondering how can he possibly like the forces against him now are so mm-hmm. strong and just just one of these you know if just the if just one mob was after him I would be wondering how he's going to get out of it but to have two mobs sort of warring over who gets to kill him <laughs> uh really uh you know puts him in this this situation and then add the vulnerability of throwing his daughter and his ex-wife into the mix and you know the fact that they're obviously at some point going to be in peril or used as bait yeah the, you know the, then you really yeah have to wonder how he can pull pull through this i I'm, I'm a big fan of stories where there appears to be some kind of an unwinnable scenario and that by the end of the movie you don't feel cheated you don't feel like i'm gonna I'm going to throw some more shade at J.J. Abrams right now. I'm going to do this more and more as the podcast goes on, (laughs) where you write yourself into a corner and you're thinking, oh, boy, like I've written the characters into such a pickle that now I, as the writer, am in a pickle. I know I will just have some interdimensional hole open up and it spits out a gun that he needs to kill the bad guy with or something. You know, there's that (laughs) that's a obviously a big stretch, as are most of the stories in J.J. Abrams films. Look, I like the guy. Who am I? Who am I to talk? I, I, I like a lot of his movies. It's just I, I like it when a very difficult scenario is, is set up and that a resolution arrives more or less organically. And I think Wheelman did a good job with that here. You know, we've talked a bit about the cinematography and how it's sort of you know shot almost exclusively inside this car. And there are times where it feels a bit uncomfortable and a bit feels a bit unnecessarily restricting. But at the same time, it's. I imagine the same film told in a much more straightforward way, you know, with a lot of Michael Bay cuts and whatnot. And I, th- I, I do think it would be a lesser movie if they hadn't tried to do something interesting with the format. Yeah, I agree. In my mind, this could be a good gateway drug kind of movie for people who are more interested in Fast and the Furious type kind of, you know, shut your brain off and enjoy the explosions, popcorn, action flick stuff. And then kind of just give them that little taste, that inkling of like, oh, wait, there's a different way to tell this kind of story. And so to that extent, I actually applaud Wheelman for for taking something that has been done in cliched ways a lot of times and actually tried to do something a bit fresh and interesting with it. Although I have heard that, I haven't seen this film that it's accused of doing this to, but I've, I've heard that it's very similar to Tom Hardy's movie Locke. Have you heard of that one, Bo? Oh yes, I haven't. I haven't seen that film, but yeah, I understand that takes place with a phone conversation and all inside a car as well. Mm-hmm. So we'll have to. It'll be homework for our listeners. Go watch Locke and see if you like it better or worse than Wheelman. But you know, I don't know what the timeline is on those films. Like, I'm not sure which one comes first. Actually, 
Oh, Locke came out in 2011, I think. 2011, 2012, something around there. Oh, did it? Was it that long ago? Yeah, it's been almost oh, okay. almost 10 years, I think. Okay. Well, there you go. Are we wrong, listeners? Tell us in the comments. <laughs> but yeah, no, I think uh, I got no regrets. I think of of the uh, streaming originals we've watched so far, I think this was one of the better ones. Um, Wait, there's one other thing I wanted to, oh, yeah, yeah. I wanted to get into because you dropped a phrase earlier when you were talking about how the movie was creating sympathy for the main character as you you know you want to do mm-hmm. not only so that we feel a sense of urgency for him but also perhaps because he he is a criminal and we're kind of exploring that world. Mm-hmm. But you said the phrase, you know, that shows that he's a family man, he's a he's a good father and this is one of the things where I'm kind of wondering, like, okay, is this guy a contender for, you know, I'm not sure that he's winning any Father of the Year prizes <laughs> with uh, <laughs> with some of the things that happened. Because this, to me, was one of the points. Now, I understand bringing in other characters. Right, right. And I understand that within the constraints of this film, at some point they've got to be in the car or they're just a voice, right? Uh-huh. And getting the daughter involved, the 13-year-old daughter, I mean, you're kind of juggling with, okay, you can see that he's concerned, right? You, you can see he's concerned about his daughter. There's this issue as his own tension is building. He's taking time out of that to kind of deal with the fact that his daughter is, you know, a, th- a 13-year-old girl with her boyfriend coming over. And he's trying to keep that situation within the bounds that he wants it to remain in. And so the fact that, he, you know, that he cares shows that, you know, he's not a a total deadbeat or anything. <laughs> at the same time, you know, I mean, he is out there with a machine gun shooting at people. He is telling his daughter to hop in the car, his 13-year-old daughter to hop in the car and, you know, drive over to this and this place and all these kind of things. <laughs> and, I mean, there was a point in the film where I'm kind of going, all right, I... Just tell her to take the car. He's worried because one of the mob guys sort of threatens, like, look, I know where you live. I know you have a daughter. I know where your ex-wife is. Uh And that's the point where he, like, quickly calls her and is like, okay, just get in the car and drive. And I thought, oh, I see. He's going to have her go to, like, a place. Like, he's going to tell – you know, at one point she even goes through and finds, like, his credit cards and stuff. Like, through her – through instructions. I thought, oh, like – Okay, he's going to get her to like a safe house. He's gonna, she's going to go over to Uncle So and So's house, or or she's going to go get a hotel room or something and get her out of the way. But <laughs> no, he actually has her like come and interact and bring him a vehicle. And... Kill two birds with one stone, Bo. He gets her out of his house where the criminals are probably going, and she gets to help him do crime. That's a win-win. <laughs> <laughs> No, yeah, that's 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 a very fair point. I, I don't know. To to me, does it? I mean, did it reach a lunacy point to you? Did it feel like okay, this isn't a perfect character. He's dealing with you know what he has to do and trying to survive. Or did you did you ever feel it was straying into like, wait a minute, this character wouldn't do this? You know, that's a good question. I th- I think for me. You know, every movie has kind of this unspoken, this sort of invisible narrator that through the actions and the dialogue on screen is sort of telling you whether you should think something is good or bad or not. Right. It's one of the reasons people accuse movies like Avatar of being too preachy, you know. 
which, you know, when you do it in small doses, it, typically the actions would speak for themselves. You know, somebody murders an innocent person and you're supposed to think that's bad. You shouldn't have to be like, wait, am I supposed to like this? <laughs> but again, there are movies where somebody kills somebody and, and it seems like the movie glorifies it, you know, and it seems like they're thinking, yeah, isn't it cool that that person just died, you know? And in this case, there isn't there isn't really a lot of friction in his terrible decisions for his daughter. There isn't a lot of narrative pushback of like maybe this is a really really bad idea yeah we get a little bit of his ex-wife by the way his ex-wife played by frank grillo's actual wife oh really yeah a little tidbit for you there but we get a fun fact a moment where she is you know chewing him out for you know little does she know what is going to happen yeah you know as the night progresses to her and everyone else but we get a moment where she's chewing him out for leaving her, leaving the daughter alone at all. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the boyfriend being over there and she just kind of says like, well, you know, what are you thinking? How can you just go off and leave your 13-year-old daughter home and with the boyfriend coming over and all that? So there's some pushback there. And that's even before having her drive around on the streets without a license or bring him a car or <laughs> any of that stuff. It's kind of know. funny because, I mean, we've, we've already gotten plenty spoilery at this point, but this next part's extra spoilery because it's like the last shot of the film. So cover your ears for about 30 seconds if you don't want to hear it. Uh, but at the, the very, very last shot of the film is him looking out of his windshield at a restaurant where his daughter runs up and sees his ex-wife and they hug and they sit down and talk. And he kind of looks with a smile on his face and there's kind of this vibe of like, all right, I protected my family. You know, I was able to, I was able to save my family. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a pretty nice little feel good ending, but I almost half expected the minute that she starts talking to the mom, I almost like, even with the way the camera focuses on his face, I was very much expecting something like home alone where it's (laughs) Kevin, what did you do to my room? And then suddenly shocked expression peels out, drives away. You let your daughter drive a Porsche in front of a bunch of gang members. Ah." Yeah. Especially considering what the ex-wife goes through. Yeah, gosh. She gets, you know, without any knowledge of what's happening, gets kidnapped, taken away, (laughs) witnesses her husband pop out of nowhere (laughs) with her daughter driving a car, throws a Molotov cocktail at at a mob boss's car, you know, and then drags her into a stairwell where I guess she shelters and... Well, they go and yeah. resolve some things for a while. I'd have some questions. <laughs> Again, I mean, it's unfortunate because we've sort of been picking at this movie. And and maybe the reason is, is because it's sort of just a sleek little movie. And so yeah, yeah. in order to talk about it, you do have to kind of dig in and, and pick at some little things. But it's like you said, I don't think this was a bad movie. It was an, yeah. it was an interesting take on a wheelman interesting use of the language of cinema, little thriller. I guess I would say then that if you like an action flick, if you like a thriller, a crime film, chances are as long as you're not going to get caught up in, you know, the profanity or anything, I'd say this is a pretty, mm-hmm. this is a film that could pretty easily be recommended to anyone who likes action flicks. I think there's enough here for people who are more likely to be watching Criterion films, say, to be interested in the film. And it's easy enough to please someone who, like we're saying, is is like a, I don't know, fan of the Fast and the Furious or something. Who knows? Yeah. It ticks the boxes in a way that, that isn't terribly insulting. Like any Hollywood, well, I mean, this is more of an indie thing, but like any, you know, American action film, it's got a few moments where if you sat and thought about it for a long time, you might start to think well i'm not sure 
that exactly works. But yeah, I don't think you have a lot of those moments during the film. You know, it's zipping along at a pretty good pace. Mostly you're just trying to to solve the puzzle of how to survive right there along with our well-coiffed hero. <laughs> and what a coif he has. Yeah, I think uh, if, if you're looking for a good a good crime thriller, you could do an awful lot worse. I think especially if you're looking for, some, for something that plays with format, uh, it is kind of fun to be this up close and personal with a wheel man who's fighting for his life. Um, yeah, if you're not, if you, if you don't get too, uh, if you're not too bothered by cussies, there's a, there's, there's a lot to enjoy here. Also, if you're a fan of Burt Chance from Raising Hope, uh, Garrett Dillahunt, he's, he's always in a bunch of random things. Oh yeah. Yeah, he is. <laughs> yeah. I'm a big fan of his. He, he gets about five minutes of glory in this movie and, uh, yeah. he, he, he chews the scenery and every, every time he gets a chance on screen, I always like him. So he's, yeah, he, he is a, I agree. He's a very compelling actor. I, I always remember him and everything that he's in. Yeah. I, 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 it's kind of a shame. He's the guy's like in his, he's probably like in his mid to late forties at this point And he's barely, I think his biggest role that I've seen him in was maybe the, the bad guy in Looper, but he's, this is, this is a message to all the Hollywood executives who listen to our podcast. Give, give Garrett Dillahunt a leading role. Give him, give him a vehicle that makes him a, give him his Robert Downey Jr. moment where he becomes a, a household name, you know? He's earned it. Right. Right. And Garrett, if you ever want to call in, you know, the line is always open. Yeah, Garrett. We're here for you. We love you. We hope you're doing okay. Be well. <laughs> okay. But yeah, no, this was a, this, this was, this was a, a good batch of films, I think. This was this was a, this was a fun bunch. I like crime. You like crime, Bo? Yeah, I, <laughs> <laughs> I I agree. This this was a you know two movies that I think are pretty pretty easy to like. Not not too divisive. Not very controversial. They have their their fascinations. I think one was certainly a better film than the other, but you know I'm not going to hold it against any movie that it isn't The Asphalt Jungle by John Huston. So. <laughs> Eh, not the asphalt jungle. That's a B minus. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, thanks for thanks for checking in with us, everybody. This has been episode four of Kicking and Streaming. We always love having you here. Tune in in two weeks for episode five. We're gonna we're getting we're gonna get into some real nitty gritties. I got a, I got a good movie picked out for Bo. Well, we'll cover that in a week or so. We'll we'll fill you in. Yeah, and you can watch for every Monday. We've got something coming out, whether it's the episode or our announcement telling you what's what's coming up. So. Next Monday, we'll have that schedule released for you. That's right. And, uh, oh, and last but not least, a very special thank you to Joe Hafen, our editor. He's been doing a great job uh, <laughs> stringing together a coherent episode out of our meandering nonsense. Trust me, you guys think we're eloquent. You should hear what it sounds like <laughs> when it's a raw recording. He makes us into a choir of angels. So thanks, Joe. And uh, take care. K- keep uh, keep kicking and keep streaming. Don't kick the streams. Kick on, kick on streaming. Uh, yeah, well, we'll get there someday. <laughs> <laughs>